the rather unfestive tale of the Hexham Heads, followed by a look at some Christmas traditions. Welcome to episode 20 of a Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. Welcome to the last episode of 2023. To begin with, for you Scrooges out there, there's the non-seasonal strange tale of the Hexham Heads. Following that, I'll have a look at some of our Christmas traditions. I just want to take the opportunity to thank everyone this year who has listened to the podcast, and also all those who have participated online on the project's social media. There are two items of news to share as well. First, some of you know about the plan to turn the podcast into a series of books. So the plan will be put into motion starting in the new year, compiling the Within the Boggart Wood Year 1 publication. This will take a while, but when it's done it'll be published in paperback, and all subscribed Patreon podcasting Pucker members will be given access to a free download of the e-version. Second item of news is that I'm in the middle of putting together an old-style discussion forum for the podcast, so that folk can take part in discussions away from social media. Now, one of the many questions I've been asked by listeners via social media this year is whether or not I listen to any other podcasts. I do listen to a fair few, usually when I'm at work, so again, before we start today's stories, I thought I'd share two of my favourites, The Three Ravens and The Whispering Woods. So have a listen to these promos, and if you fancy a treat to relax to over Christmas, please follow and listen to these fantastic podcasts. Are you interested in English myth and folklore? Of course you are. Why else would you be listening to Within the Boggart Wood? In which case, why not join us round the campfire and try the Three Ravens podcast, our weekly journey around England's 39 historic counties. I'm Martin. And I'm Eleanor. And we launched Three Ravens in March. There are now over 60 episodes to listen to, including loads of bonus episodes about all sorts of weird and wonderful things and stuff. From folk remedies and the history of magical practices to exploration of strange creatures and monsters from around the world. Episodes about dying crafts and true crimes with folkloric twists. Give us a try on your favourite podcast app. Series 3 is coming out right now with new episodes on Mondays, bonus episodes on Thursdays, and information all about Three Ravens on social media and on our website at threeravenspodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and sorry for getting in the way of what's going to be yet another amazing episode of Within the Boggart Wood. And remember, don't whistle until you're out of the woods, boggarty ones or otherwise. Hello and welcome to the Whispering Woods podcast. I'm Sarah and this is my 12-year-old son, Toby. I've had that with sleep paralysis. What a goblin. Nah, it's just a creature. Okay, but do you do up? That was a bit of a bad stutter. Sometimes I want to hug him. Sometimes I want to scream at him. But mostly, I just want to scare him stupid. The legend of the Navajo skinwalker. Because that's the kind of mum I am. Join us every Sunday as I tell true tales of the paranormal in an attempt to terrify my youngest child. This type of being operates by an entirely different set of rules. Will it work? Subscribe and find out wherever you get your podcasts.
1973 Volume 1 of the fifth series of Archaeologia Aeliana, the Journal of the Society of Antiquaries of Newcastle-on-Tyne, contained an article by Dr Anne Ross entitled Some New Thoughts on Old Heads. Anne Ross was a scholar and researcher in folklore and Iron Age archaeology, with a specialism in what was then classed as Celtic ritual. Fellow archaeologist Roger Mikett had, two years previously in 1971, brought her attention to the finding of two small stone heads at 3 Reed Avenue in Hexham, Northumberland. The two heads came to be described as the boy and the girl, later with the girl being renamed as the witch. Both had basic disproportionate features, and are rather different in appearance and form to ancient stone heads found elsewhere in the region. In the journal article, Dr Ross described the two heads as having different carved hairstyles, with the neck of each potentially acting as tenons for insertion or fitting into a socket. Importantly, she noted that, to quote, Before attempting to date them firmly, fieldwork in the area is essential. They have an archaic appearance, and their fine spot would be in accordance with an early dating. But, whether or not subsequent research proves them to be early or late in date, their very existence and discovery, and the fact that they are of local material, has an inherent value and interest and cannot simply be ignored. The stone heads were sent to Southampton University for partial petrological analysis, to analyse the mineralogical and chemical composition of the heads under a microscope rather than through intrusive inspection. The analysis suggested that the heads were made from a local coarse sandstone with rounded quartz crystals. Further analysis via X-ray diffractometry examined a layer of fine material found to have been applied to the heads, with results suggesting calcium carbonate, commonly known as chalk, which is also a major component of limestone. From this, Ross suggested that each head had been plastered with lime to give a smooth appearance, potentially for later colouring or painting. She also noted that the left eye socket of one of the heads contained a white material containing small green spots. She also went on the record to state that the heads were indeed Celtic in origin, meaning Iron Age or Romano-British in date, and at least 1,800 years old. But while the finding of the two heads is interesting in itself, this story isn't really about the finding, but rather about the controversy surrounding them. As well as the article in Archaeologia Aeliana in 1973, the story of the Hexham heads also hit the Reader's Digest compendium Folklore, Myths and Legends of Britain. In it, Dr Ross had some rather startling claims. Apparently she received the heads for examination, and soon afterwards, one night, she'd awoken at 2am, feeling frightened and chilled through. Looking toward the door of her bedroom, she saw a tall, jet-black, wolf-headed figure outlined in the door. It turned, and Ross felt the compulsion to follow it. She followed it down to the kitchen, where it disappeared, and suddenly, with the compulsion to follow gone, she shot back upstairs to wake her husband. Together, they searched the house, but found nothing, and as their kids had slept through the experience, they chose not to tell them. A few days later, however, they returned home from a work trip to London, to find their teenage daughter in a state of panic. Apparently she returned home from school, opened the door to the house, and been confronted with a huge dark shape rushing down the stairs towards her. The shape had then hurried into the daughter's room, and as Ross had described her previous experience, her daughter felt the compulsion to follow it, but the creature had vanished. In his 1988 book, The Secret Language of Stone, Don Robbins suggested that Ross hadn't linked these strange visitations with the heads until she had then researched the alleged phenomena linked with the finding of the stones. However, I'd argue that examination of the timeline suggests that Ross had already undertaken that research and talked to those involved before her own experience. 
This brings us to an article published in the Newcastle Journal on the 3rd of March 1972, entitled Eerie Tale of the Two Idle Heads. Something that happened 1,800 years ago may force a mother of six to quit her council house. The Hexa mother says she is terrified of staying there after an eerie nighttime experience which followed the discovery of two stone heads in her next door neighbour's back garden. The heads were probably used for worship by a Celtic tribe 1,800 years ago. Yesterday, one of the country's top Celtic experts, Dr Anne Ross, said the claim by 42-year-old Ellen Dodd that she saw a half-human, half-sheep-like figure which touched her as she lay in bed could not be ruled out. Dr Ross, a Celtic linguist and archaeologist, is to see Mrs Dodd and the boys who found the heads, Colin Robson, aged 11, and his brother Leslie, aged 8, at their homes in Reed Avenue, Hexham, in May. Dr Ross is waiting for a report on the heads by geologists at Southampton University. She said she would be unable to give a final opinion until she gets the report and has made her on-the-spot investigation. It was more than likely that the heads, two and a half inches high, were made by Celtic tribesmen whose main cult was to worship heads as gods. Quite often they worshipped human heads taken from their enemies. Dr Ross said she would have to examine the site near a privet hedge where the heads were found before she could determine whether the Robson's garden and house are over a shrine or burial ground. On Mrs Dodd's claim, she said, there is no doubt that if there was a Celtic shrine there, and this has yet to be proved, one would not be surprised to hear of supernatural manifestation. There are other examples of this on the continent and in Britain where shrines have been found and where there have been hauntings. Mrs Dodd said, I have asked the council for a move because I am too nervous to stay here now. I had gone into the children's bedroom to sleep with one of them who had been unwell, and my ten-year-old son, Brian, kept telling me that he felt something touching him. I told him not to be silly. Then I saw this shape. It came towards me, and I definitely felt it touch me on the legs. Then on all fours, it moved out of the room. I was absolutely terrified and screamed for my husband. The boy's mother, Mrs Jenny Robson, said, The unusual thing about this is that before the heads were found, Colin made a clear head at school. It is remarkable in its likeness to the heads found in the garden. Colin said the idea of making this head just came to him. Mrs Robson added that neither she or her family had experienced anything similar to what had happened to Mrs Dodd. Naturally, as you'd expect, the alleged paranormal phenomena surrounding the heads caught the attention of the media. With the aforementioned Reader's Digest article globally highlighting the case, and the tale appearing on a Tyne Tees television news feature later that year. It was at that point that Mr Desmond Craigie entered the fray. He'd lived at Three Reed Avenue for over 30 years, with his father being the tenant at the property until the Robson family moved into it in 1970. While living there, by trade, he worked with artificial stone, and one day he'd been asked by his young daughter about his work. So one day during 1956, during a lunch break, he quickly fashioned three small stone heads for her to play with. One had broken, which he threw out, but the remaining two had been lovingly played with for years by his daughter before being lost. When the heads had appeared on Tiny's television, his daughter rang him to tell him what was going on. He mulled over what he should do about it, and then in 1974, when the heads returned from their analysis to the Society of Antiquaries, he came forward with his story, even meeting with Dr. Ross while she was lecturing in Newcastle. Ross's response was via media, suggesting that she'd give more credence to his claim if he had more as an example. So Craigie duly made more, 
but Ross dismissed them as they did not look exactly the same as the originals, citing that the new heads didn't have the tenons or necks the originals did. Now, from my own point of view in this, if someone asked me to make copies of something I'd created nearly 20 years previously, I think I'd likely not be able to make perfect replicas either, but I suppose I digress. On Monday 14th of January 1974, the Newcastle Journal reported, Relics that spooked a boffin. One of Britain's top Celtic archaeologists got more than she bargained for when she was sent carvings a Hexham labourer claimed were his lunchtime artworks. Yesterday, Newcastle-born scholar Dr Anne Ross, aged 46, of Southampton said, First I woke up one night and the air was freezing cold, the way people say it goes when ghosts are about. I felt really frightened. Then I saw the shape moving towards the door. It was like an animal standing on its hind legs. It was half human, half beast like a werewolf. A few days later I got the same feeling when I was in my study, while I saw nothing. Other members of my family, including my daughter and young son, felt most uncomfortable. They also heard and saw things. The two roughly carved heads were found two years ago in a garden in Reed Avenue, Hexham. They were thought to be Celtic religious symbols and were sent by Newcastle Museum to Dr Ross at Southampton University for identification. But then Mr Desmond Craigie, aged 55, of Prior Terrace, Hexham, claimed he had made them only 18 years before. He said, I made them for my daughter. I was working at an artificial stone firm and simply moulded the mixture and roughly carved the face. Dr Ross said, We had full tests carried out and it seems unlikely that they were made recently. Analysis showed that they were carved from a local rock. Of course the analysis could be wrong. I intend to come north and see Mr Craigie and examine the area where the finds were made. Another mystery surrounds the two heads. Shortly after they were found, a next door neighbour saw a similar figure to Dr Ross's description. Mother of six, Mrs Ellen Dodds, aged 44, was moved to another council house because she had been badly frightened. Dr Ross said, I cannot explain it, but there is something evil there. In May, I became ill and then asked for the heads to be sent back. Immediately I recovered and all my family agree that afterwards they felt very relieved, as if a weight had been removed from their shoulders. With the continuing interest and media coverage of the heads, it was decided that further analysis of the composition of the heads was necessary, and later in 1974 the heads were sent to Dr Douglas Robson of Newcastle University who took samples of the head's material in the form of three thin sections, rather than just the microscopic work undertaken previously by Southampton University. Robson's work concluded without a shadow of a doubt that the heads were, in fact, man-made, not constructed of natural sandstone, and were a compound comprising seashore sand, ground limestone and water. This was seen by many as proof positive of Craigie having made them in the 1950s, and so by the close of 1974, the myth of the Hexham heads appeared to have been dispelled, but as with any good story, there are those who continue to believe, against all evidence, in the paranormal and ancient nature of the heads. Dr Ross herself appeared to have upheld her claim of the heads being Romano-British in origin until her death in 2012, and there are those that contest that without antiquity to the heads, how could the alleged paranormal activity have actually occurred? Though that activity did continue to evolve in the media, with the 1976 February edition of the BBC's nationwide programme apparently reporting that the Dodds family had seen a werewolf in their house, rather than the half-man, half-sheep in the original reports, which apparently then padded downstairs and wandered off into the night through an open door. 
Whether this was just an amalgamation of the Dodds and Ross family experiences as the story developed, or a previously unreported incident is unknown. Of note, however, is that the council had indeed granted the Dodds' request to be rehomed, with no peculiar activity of any sort reported by the new tenants after they'd left. So I'm now going to put a basic timeline together using original reports, but there's actually quite a lot of contradictory information about the case, so all I can say is if anyone does have any extra evidence to alter this timeline, please get in touch. First though, I think we should be very aware of the social climate of the time. In the UK and the US, the 1960s and 70s saw a massive rise in what was classed as occult belief and the rise of New Age practices. Poltergeist activity was in the local press, with newspapers from the 60s and 70s holding a number of Northeast articles referencing poltergeist activity, some of which I've already covered on previous podcast episodes. Horror films were also becoming more and more popular, with over 60 titles released in the UK between 1971 and 1973. This included such classics as The Werewolf vs. The Vampire Woman and Werewolves on Wheels in 1971, and in 1972, Fury of the Wolfman, Dr. Jekyll vs. The Werewolf and The Rats Are Coming, The Werewolves Are Here. So popular culture at the time was already priming the populace for experiences of the paranormal kind. Looking at Anne Ross herself, during 1973 she was also writing a book to be titled Celtic Requiem which was to include work on Celtic shrines of the type she supposed lay beneath Reed Avenue. As far as I can tell, the book was never actually published. But again, if anyone knows differently, please let me know. So, let's look at a basic timeline. Number 1. In 1956, Desmond Craigie, who worked with Artificial Stone, made three heads for his young daughter to show her what her dad did for a living. Two survived. He fashioned the heads from the material at work, giving them roughly human features, hair and necks, essentially dolls' heads made from stone. Number two, over time his daughter grew out of playing with them and being stone objects like we just left in the garden where she last played with them. Number three, in 1970 the Robson family became the new tenants of Three Reed Avenue. Number four, in 1971 the two Robson boys described as clearing weeds in a corner by the hedge of the same property found the heads again and brought them inside. Number 5. In 1972, the Robsons contacted the relevant archaeological authorities. Number 6. The neighbours, the Dodds, then go to the press, claiming they had to ask the council to move them to a different council house due to the paranormal activity occurring since the heads had been found. The claim was that one of the children, ill at the time, reported something touching him and then the mother saw a creature moving on all fours that touched on the legs before vanishing out of the room, whereupon she screamed. This creature was described as half sheep, half human. The Robson family tell the press that they hadn't experienced anything similar in their own house. Number 7. The same newspaper article describes Dr. Ross's response to the creature claim as, One would not be surprised to hear of a supernatural manifestation. There are other examples of this on the continent and in Britain where shrines have been found and where there have been hauntings. Note, there is no known evidence of any such Romano-British shrine at the site in question. The wording of Ross's response also suggests that she had not yet had her own werewolf experience. Number 8, 1973. Ross publishes the article on the Hexham Heads in Reader's Digest, along with her sightings of the werewolf. From a psychological point of view, and of course only a theory, is that Ross was already predisposed towards paranormal interpretation of events, 
and her description of waking, seeing the werewolf and then following it in a daze before it vanished, and her starting from the daze to run upstairs to her husband, sounds a lot like sleepwalking. Interestingly, sleepwalking and basic dreaming usually occur in separate parts of the dream cycle, so sleepwalkers actually rarely dream. However, studies have been undertaken to investigate the potential for what is known as dreamlike mentations during sleepwalking. One such study by Oudiet in 2009 concluded that, to quote, short unpleasant dreamlike mentations may occur during sleepwalking or sleep terror episodes, suggesting that a complex mental activity takes place during slow wave sleep. Sleepwalking may thus represent acting out of the corresponding dreamlike mentation. I'll put a link to this in the episode description. Now this could well explain Ross's werewolf, especially with the information she knew about the Dodds' sighting, as well as the work she was doing on Celtic shrines. But then we then have to look at her daughter's sighting days later. At the time, Ross said that the kids hadn't woken during her own encounter with the creature, but that would be a difficult one to check. Only a theory, but it could be that even if her daughter hadn't actually woken up fully, she may have heard a discussion as they searched the house for the creature. Days later, the teenager then potentially experienced the event, Though from my own point of view, I know that if my own daughter had come home from school to find a werewolf on the stairs, she would not be waiting inside the house for me to come home to tell the traumatic tale. This of course is a rather cynical view on the latter encounter, and a theory that can never be tested. Number 9. At some point during that time, the Robsons report poltergeist-like activity in their home, such as the heads turning around, a mirror shattering and glass sherds being found in one of the Robson daughter's beds. Number 10. The fame of the Reader's Digest article catches the attention of Tyne T's television, who they're doing a news piece on it, which the Craigies see and realise the toys are being cited as essentially cursed Celtic heads. Number 11. Craigie meets with Ross, produces further heads as examples, which she debunks as they weren't exactly the same as those he produced 20 years earlier. Number 12. Newcastle University then confirms that the heads were in fact made of artificial stone, rather than natural seemingly supporting Craigie's claim of making them in the 1950s. And finally, number 13. Allegedly, Anne Ross returned the two heads to the Museum of Antiquities in Newcastle-on-Tyne soon after her encounter with Craigie, but when Craigie asked to see them in April 1975, the museum responded that they had been returned to the Robsons at Three Reed Avenue. However, inquiries made in 1977 appeared to show that the heads had never reached their destination. Apparently, According to Don Robbins in an article in Alpha magazine, the geologist who had done the original microscopic inspection at Southampton University still had them in his desk drawer, though how they'd actually made their way back there is unknown. Alpha magazine was dedicated to parapsychology and earth mysteries, and in it Robbins reported on the supernatural qualities of the two heads, specifically the one suggested to depict a female. Allegedly, the heads were then loaned to astrologer Frank Hyde, who confirmed through dowsing that the female head was the main focus of the supernatural behaviour. Frank Hyde then disappeared along with the heads. Interestingly though, the existence of Frank Hyde has even been called into question, with researchers not as yet being able to actually prove the man existed. And thus, for conspiracy fans, the legend continues. Though many have suggested that anything from when Ross allegedly sent the heads back to Newcastle in 1974 onwards may have been a fabrication just to keep the story alive. One thing I can categorically state though is that the Society of Antiquaries does not have them hidden in a secret vault in the bowels of Newcastle. 
and no matter how many paranormal and folklore enthusiasts contact them eager for more information, the heads disappeared in the 1970s and as such there's no more information to be had in at least the last 50 years. As ever with this presentation, if anyone has any further information on the case, please do get in touch. Especially if you have two nice cement heads in your possession that I can use as paperweights. The first tradition to look at is that of the Christmas tree. There are a number of theories as to the origin of our Christmas tree traditions. One thought is that the tradition derives from the concept of a paradise tree, a fir tree hung with apples that was meant to represent the Garden of Eden used in medieval morality plays throughout Europe. The fall of Adam and Eve was often performed on December the 24th. The trees were also adorned with wafers representing the Holy Eucharist. By the 16th century it is thought that in West Germany many people started bringing a paradise tree into their homes on Christmas Eve, and in turn the tree became a Christmas tree. Candles were also added to the decoration of the tree, said to symbolise Christ as the light of the world. During the Victorian period, the trees were hung again with candles, but with small toys, ribbons and paper chains also added, with blown glass baubles available from the late 19th century onwards. Another tale as to the origin of the Christmas tree tells of the 8th century St Boniface, encountering a group of pagans about to deliver a sacrifice to Thor at an oak tree. Boniface subsequently chopped the tree down, and much to the dismay of the pagan onlookers was untouched by Thor's hammer. Boniface then proclaimed nearby fir to be a holy tree, and thus the Christmas tree was born. Yet another theory is that the Christmas tree simply has its origins in the Yule tree. Yule derives from a 12-day festival celebrated by Germanic and Scandinavian folk around the winter solstice in pagan communities. By the 10th century AD, it had also been subsumed by the celebration of Christmas. Currently, Yule is celebrated between the 21st of December and the 1st of January. The Yule tree in Nordic tradition had the fate of becoming the Yule log, but apparently originally the whole tree was brought into the house with a great ceremony before being lit by a fragment of the previous year's tree. The second tradition to look at is that of the Yule log. This tradition is illustrated in the Jarrow Express, Friday 20th of December 1889 article, entitled simply Christmas Customs. The burning of the Yule log was one of the chief customs which was incorporated into Christmastide observances from the Scandinavians, who had a feast of Yule when they burned logs etc to thaw. The huge logs which were consumed in the lordly halls of medieval times were usually lighted with an unburnt fragment of last year's log for luck. In some parts along the log lasted, the servants were allowed ale at their meals. If a flat-footed woman came into the apartment where the log was being burnt, or any barefooted person, it was considered a sign of ill luck. Travellers who met the Yule log as it was being borne to its burning raised their hats to it. Those who helped it on its way were free from spells of every kind. The customs of Christmas Eve are innumerable, and seem to have been a sort of foretaste of the pleasures of twelve jolly days to follow. Hot cakes, spiced ale and frumetry were lavishly dealt round, while carols were lustily chanted forth. Now the Yule log was lighted by maidens with clean hands. It was said, wash your hands or else the fire will not attend to your desire. Unwashed hands, ye maidens know, dead the fire, though ye blow. Bread made on Christmas Eve was said never to become mouldy. The custom of singing carols at Christmas dates from the time when the common people ceased to understand Latin. There's a rather pretty superstition about the apple trees common in the Midland counties. If the sun shines through the apple trees on Christmas Day, there will be a good yield for the following year. 
This no doubt had its origin in the fact that if Christmas weather is bright and seasonable, the probability is that a large crop of fruit will follow as a natural consequence. In Devonshire, the yule log is generally from an ash tree, and is called the ashen faggot, which is understood to be burnt on all 12 days of Christmas. The tradition is that Joseph made fire from ashen boughs by which the newborn saviour received his first robing. Another Christmas tradition thought of its origins in pagan festivities is that of mistletoe. Mistletoe is actually a parasitic plant which attaches itself to its host plant and draws fluids and nutrients through a stem. The plant itself is poisonous. There are over a thousand known varieties of the plant, each with differing toxicity to humans. So taking that all into account, the tradition is to kiss under the mistletoe at Christmas. But why? Again, like the Christmas tree, there are a number of original stories. One story puts it into Norse mythology, where allegedly the god Balder was killed with an arrow made of mistletoe, whereupon his mother Frigg declared that as long as the plant was never used as a weapon again, people would kiss beneath it. Another theory is that the Romans linked mistletoe to fertility, and thus kissed beneath it during the Saturnalia festival. Medically speaking, modern research has borne out this theory. The following extract is taken from the cancer.gov website. It has been used for hundreds of years to treat medical conditions such as epilepsy, asthma, hypertension, headaches, menopausal symptoms, infertility, dermatitis, arthritis and rheumatism. Mistletoe extracts are one of the most widely studied complementary and alternative medicine therapies for cancer. On Christmas Eve 1897, the following article appeared in the Blythe News. The mistletoe is perhaps the plant par excellence of the Christmas tradition. It is inseparably associated with holiday festivity and mirth. No plant on earth has ever aroused so many kinds of interest on all possible grounds as the mystic mistletoe. Take it how you will, that strange shrub is a wonder. From every point of view it teems with curiosity. Its parasitic modes of growth, its paradoxical greenness among the bare boughs of winter, its pale and ghostly berries, its sticky fruit filled with viscid birdlime, have all aroused profound and respectful attention from the very earliest age. Then its religious importance in so many countries and ages, its connection with Christmas and the midwinter Saturnalia, its social survival to our own time as the Yuletide symbol, and its modern relation to the pleasing anachronism of indiscriminate kissing, all invested alike with an additional factitious importance. The Denham Tracts, printed between 1846 and 1859, hold a number of customs. To send a vessel cup singer away from your doors unrequited, at least the first that comes, is to forfeit the good luck of all the approaching year. Every family that can possibly afford it at least have a Yule cheese and a Yule cake provided against Christmas Eve, and it's considered very unlucky to cut either of them before the festival of all festivals. A tall mould candle, called a Yule candle, is lighted in the evening and set upon the table. These are presented by the chandlers and grocers to their customers. The Yule log is either bought of the carpenter's apprentice or found in some neighbour's field. It would be unlucky to light either the log or candle till the proper period. So also it is considered unlucky to stir the fire or move the candlestick during the supper. Neither must the candle be snuffed nor anyone stir from the table till supper is ended. In these suppers it is considered unlucky to have an odd number at the table, especially so of 13. This latter piece of superstition is evidently taken from the Last Supper partaken by our blessed Saviour and his 12 Apostles. 
A fragment of the log is occasionally saved and put under the bed to remain till next Christmas. It secures the house from fire, and a small piece of it thrown into a fire, occurring at the house of a neighbour, will quell the raging element. A piece of the candle should be kept to ensure good luck. No person, except boys, must presume to go out of the doors till the threshold has been consecrated by the footstep of a male. The entrance of a woman on the morning of this day, as well as that of the new year, is considered as the height of ill luck. St Stephen's Day in the North is devoted pretty generally to hunting and shooting, the game laws being considered as not in force on that day. Thanks for listening to this, the last episode of 2023. The podcast will be back in 2024 to help you while away the dark and gloomy nights. As per usual, if you'd like to know any more about the project, such as social media or Patreon links, please visit the project website at theboggartwood.uk. So finally, many thanks for listening this year and for your continued support. Until next year, stay safe and have a fantastic festive season. 